Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, and I hope that it is well with your soul this evening. And as the hymn indicates, it's not because everything is going the way we hoped it might go. When peace like a river attends my way, or when sorrows white like sea billows roll just over and over, whatever my lot, you've taught me to say it's well with my soul. Well, last Sunday, and we began Hebrews 3, we, we talked about the fact that Jesus is the faithful son over God's house. Moses is, was a servant in the house of God, but Jesus is the son over the house of God. In fact, as God, Jesus is the builder of the house. So just like Jesus is superior to the angels, Jesus is superior to Moses. And the concluding verse, uh, verse 6, says, We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. And we talked about the fact this is an important condition placed on that uh, statement that we are his house. Now, I uh, remember we said last week, a Christian, a genuine Christian, cannot lose his salvation. The Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints. And the warnings that we find throughout Scripture are employed for the purpose of persuading God's people to persevere in faith. It's the means, in fact, that God uses to keep us persevering, or one of the means he uses to keep us persevering in the faith. And so, throughout the book of Hebrews, where these Jewish Christians of the first century, are, uh, some are tempted with the, uh, the, uh, the, the challenges of life in Christ in their world, and the, the, the challenges and trials they were enduring tempted to go back, to look back, and, and there's these constant uh, uh, warnings in Hebrews, hold fast, take care, press on, don't let go, don't wander off. All of these are intended to, uh, in, in to encourage us and yet to motivate us to persevere. And so the text we come to this evening is one such warning where the writer is drawing from the example of Israel as they wander through the wilderness. And he's drawing primarily, or really he's drawing directly, excuse me, from Psalm 95, uh, which is what I read for the call to worship this morning. Come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before our maker. He is our God. And we're his people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And then immediately the psalmist pivots and says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. And this is the text that is actually quoted almost directly or directly in our text this evening. So please follow. I'm going to begin reading in Hebrews 3, and I'll begin reading in verse 7. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with their generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, guide us this evening. Give us tender hearts, not hard hearts, to run and cling fast to you, our Savior, and our King. We pray that you would use your word as it is proclaimed, as an instrument in your hand to accomplish the purposes for which you send it, to bring about 
conversion, to bring about warning, to bring about encouragement and motivation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like a a good five-point Calvinist, my message has five points this evening. Uh, A spoken message, a serious appeal, a sobering example, a severe judgment, and a solemn warning. Five points and alliteration. Don't look for that again. Anyway, let's look first of all, a spoken message. Verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice. Now, what we hear, have here is the voice of God is speaking through the Holy Spirit. And as I said, he's quoting from Psalm 95, which begins with praises to the Lord and quickly pivots to this very serious appeal and warning. But let me ask you, before we look to the appeal and the warning, what does it mean to hear God's voice? Today, if you hear his voice, as the Holy Spirit says, well, in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel heard the voice of God in numerous ways. They witnessed his miracles, eyewitnesses to the parting of the Red Sea and the manna falling from heaven every day and the water pouring forth from the rock. They saw his pillar of cloud guiding them by day and the pillar of fire watching over them at night. But they didn't hear God's audible voice directly. Moses heard God's audible voice. God spoke to Moses clearly and he understood, first at the burning bush and then at Mount Sinai. In fact, in Exodus 19, uh, we read, The Lord called Moses to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So here's the message that Moses is to deliver to the Israelites. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice... And keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the house of Israel. So God spoke to Moses. Moses delivered that message to the children of Israel. And God says, now you are to obey my voice. He didn't say the voice of Moses. He spoke to the children of Israel through Moses. So how does God speak to you and me today? God doesn't speak in audible voices and burning bushes like he did with Moses. He didn't do that with even Aaron to uh, anything that we can tell, Moses alone. So how does he speak to us today? Well, our memory verse for the month tells us if it's going to, I think it's going to be coming up. Is it coming up? Yes, there it is. I knew it would. All right, let's say that together. Here we go. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, we don't believe God is speaking to us in new revelations. Jesus is the ultimate revelation, the final word. And the New Testament is the writing down of that revelation of God. It is God's Word spoken to us, his spoken message to us in the written word. And we're not just talking about the quotations of Jesus and the direct quotations of God the Father. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is the Word of God. All Scripture comes to us as the voice of God. And what God, and the way that God speaks to us today is through his Word, through the Holy Scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 3, 
it attributes the Scripture to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit says. And then he quotes from the book of Psalms. One of the commentators points out <coughs> this affirms the origin of the Scriptures because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. He spoke. He says this. The authority of the Scriptures. It affirms the authority of the Scriptures because it's God's Word. It's the Word of God. And it affirms the relevance of the Scripture. Today, if you hear His voice, it's not simply some man-made tradition from a bygone era that has lost its significance or its relevance. It applies today just as much as it did the very first day when it was written down. In James 1.22 says, you and I are to be doers of the Word and not merely hearers or hearers only. And that word which we are to hear and to do is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Now, we read here today, if you hear his voice, meaning if you hear the word, the word read, but I would say also the word preached, the word taught, the word explained, pay attention to the word, listen, the written word of God is the voice of God speaking to you. But what about the preached word? Does it have the same authority as the very words of God in Scripture? And the answer is no, of course not. But it is the unfolding or the unpacking of the Word of God, and it deserves due consideration. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter tells us, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. So Pastor Mark and I, and other men who preach when they have opportunity. We have the solemn responsibility to, when we speak to make sure that we are speaking as if we are presenting to you the very oracles of God. We are not speaking of our own ideas. We must be faithful to the text of the Word of God. We must be faithful to bring forth the truth as revealed in God's Word as it applies to our present life and situation. The Scripture has a lot of things to say about things that at times don't really pertain to us. And so, uh, you know, preaching uh, on, on matters that uh, may not be as relevant to us, even though they may be biblical, it would not be particularly helpful. But there's a whole lot that's very relevant and very helpful. The vast majority is right down our alley, and we need to hear all of it, the whole counsel of God. We have a solemn responsibility to be diligent with the Word, to study it carefully, to rightly handle it. But as you hear that Word, you have a responsibility to listen even as we have a responsibility how we handle the Word, you have a responsibility how you listen to the Word. You don't take it as absolute truth. You do what the Bereans did. It said they were of a noble mind, and they went and they searched the Scriptures diligently to see if what Paul said was really true. And where what Paul said was really true, it was worthy of believing and embracing. And that is the responsibility of every hearer of the Word of God. It's to be, if it's a faithful expression or a faithful explanation of the Word of God. It's to be a faithful, it's to be viewed and received as a faithful expression of the Word of God. So we're responsible to listen to the Scriptures, the very Word of God, and we are to be responsible to be doers of the Word, not simply hearers only. We have a spoken message that has come to us from God. Well, that's the spoken message. Secondly, we have a serious admonition. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, what's a hard heart? toward God and toward the Word of God. What does it mean to have a hard heart? It means that the Word makes no impression upon you. Anybody here ever seen 
uh, freshly poured concrete, and you walk up to it, and you can set your foot down in it, and from that day, once it hardens, you have a permanent footprint there. And I know a lot of people, when they build a new home or they pour a new driveway, they let their kids uh, put their initials in that concrete because it's soft and moldable. It's, a, it's, it's, it's malleable, as it were. It's, it's tender. It's soft. But then it hardens. And the only way you can get rid of those initials or that footprint is to grind the whole thing down or break it up and remove it. It becomes hard. Well, a hard heart means that the word makes no impression on the heart or on the conscience of the hearer. The warnings of the law raise no concern. The precious promises inspire no hope. They have no sweetness. One hears the word as it's explained, as it's preached, and he doesn't even care. He has no interest in what it says. He has no connection or no desire to learn that which God would say to him. No interest in the things of God. He simply dismisses the word as if it were some spam caller and wanting to get rid of it as quickly as you possibly can. Ephesians chapter 4 warns us against living like the Gentiles, the unbelievers. It says they walk in the futility of their minds. They vainly think they know the truth when they really don't. Romans 1 says they claim to be wise, but they make themselves fools. But further, Paul says they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the things of God because of their ignorance due to the hardness of their hearts. And the hardness of their hearts, uh, they have become callous, meaning they've silenced those twinges of conscience. You know what a callous is? If, you're, if your fingers are tender, uh, then, then, then things affect them. You have, you have sensitive touch. But if you, uh, if you handle a lot of heavy materials, or if uh, some of you play the guitar and your fingers develop callous, and it doesn't hurt any longer to press those, uh, those strings down. It doesn't hurt to pick up uh, uh, heavy loads. And, and, and it's interesting, I'll work with my son and I'll put on my gloves, and he, he doesn't have gloves because he doesn't need gloves because his hands are as rough as my gloves. Because he works with them. They're calloused. Well, we don't want our hearts to be calloused where things don't make an impression. It says they've suppressed that innate knowledge of God, that law that he's placed on the heart of every man. And they uh, consequently have given themselves over to every kind of impurity. So the word comes to them. It's, in their minds, it's just nonsense because they're far too sophisticated to waste their time on these outmoded and irrelevant myths. So by nature, the Gentiles have a hard heart toward God, toward the Word of God, toward the things of God. Well, can an unbeliever, or excuse me, how can an unbeliever harden his heart? Are we born with a hard heart, or can we harden this heart? And the answer is we're born with a corrupt heart, but by sin we harden it you're not a Christian this evening, I want you to listen. I want you to think about this. You hear the Word of God. Maybe you've grown up hearing God's Word. You've heard, you, you know what the Bible says. You, you hear the threatenings of the law. You hear the promises of the gospel. Perhaps, like me, you, 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 you knew the Scriptures from your childhood, but you chose to disregard, and you're still choosing to disregard these truths. You're biding your time until you can get out and go home and do what you want to do. All right, vividly remember when I was nine years old, I found a dime on the mantel in my den. Now, back then, a dime is all it cost to buy a candy bar. That was a long time ago, right? And so, I, took, I saw that dime, and I knew that was not my dime. 
And I knew for me to take that off the mantle would be stealing. But I really wanted a candy bar. And the store was just over the fence, out the backyard, over the fence, and you're at the store. And so I took that dime, and I walked out the back door, and I remember standing on the porch in my open palm looking at that dime. Should I do this or should I not? And I closed my fist, and I walked to the store, and I bought that candy bar, and it hardened my heart. Now, to my knowledge, that's the first time I ever stole, but it sure wasn't the last. And the more times I stole, the easier it got because I hardened that conscience where the Holy Spirit says, don't do that, don't do that. And I silenced and suppressed and put it down. And eventually I was congratulating myself on how skilled I had become at stealing candy bars at the store and other such things. I hardened my heart. It didn't even bother me anymore. So when the gospel came to me at the age of 13, I finally realized, I grew up in the church, I professed faith. I wasn't a Christian, and I knew it. And at that point, I really didn't care. I really wanted nothing to do with a God who was going to interfere with my pleasure, my way, my rights, my enjoyment. It was all about me. At some point, I I realized I needed to do something about that, so I, I said, well, I made a deal with God. Leave me alone for a while. Eventually, I'll come back. And I remember people trying to witness to me. And rather than having a tender heart and saying, thank you so much for sharing with me the word of life. Now, I wasn't callous enough to laugh in their face, but I really think that was more fear of man than respect, honestly. But after I would leave, I would just crack up. And, you know, with a friend of mine, somebody tried to witness to the two of us. And as we walked away, it was like, can you believe that? And we just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Our hearts were hard to the things of God. Maybe some of you here, have hardened your heart. You know the word. You've known it all your life. But there's something else you want more than what God calls you to be and to do and who God is for you in Jesus Christ or whom he would be. There are other pleasures and other treasures that you value that are keeping you from turning and running to Jesus Christ. And I would ask you, what do you have that is so precious and so wonderful? It would be worth clinging to all the way to hell because that's the warning that we find in this very text. So the word comes to you, and the Holy Spirit begins to tug on your heart, even as I have just said just now. And you hear that, and and on one hand, you know it's true, but you resist those promptings. You ignore those warnings, and maybe you, you deceive yourself like I did and say, I can deal with this some other time. So you put your fingers in your ears, as it were, maybe not physically, but you know what I mean. You suppress that truth that you know is true, and it's true about you, and you harden your heart just a little bit more. And when my conscience began to be awakened, I thought I could make that bargain with God in time, and I could come to him on my terms and my way and my time when I wanted to. Uh, I was darkened in my understanding because of the hardness of my heart. But God was gracious, and here I am. But let me ask you this. That's how a non-Christian hardens his heart. What about a Christian? Can a Christian harden his heart? Is this warning, uh, is it, is it uh, theoretical only, don't harden your heart as if a really Christian really couldn't. Or is it something real? Can a real Christian harden your heart? And the answer is yes. We can harden our hearts too. You have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've repented of your sins. You have turned away from the things of the world. And you have pursued the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given you a new heart. He's taken away the heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He's put his law upon your heart. And you have rejoiced 
at this new heart that you have and this new joy that you have in Jesus Christ. But the warning still comes, do not harden your heart. And it's a very real danger, at least to a degree. So I want you to think about this for a moment. When, When the Spirit of God convicts you for sin, do you immediately respond? Is there a tenderness to that? Or have you sort of become callous to it? And if you think about early in your Christian experience uh, where, where things just absolutely slayed you, and now it's like, now well, you know, is your heart as tender as it once was? Is it becoming more and more tender? Or are you hardening your heart to the things of God? You, over time, you, you, you lose your joy. You make careless decisions. You, you're not careful about the things of God. You compromise. You don't feel that conviction or you, you, close, you, you close your ears to it. You've quenched the Holy Spirit when he convicts you. You've grieved the Holy Spirit. And at some point, you may even stop and say, how did I get here? Well, I would, I would suggest it wasn't a sudden dive into some catastrophic departure. It's more like a frog in a kettle, a little at a time, a little at a time. The, the heat rises and the frog doesn't even realize it. And that earnest longing for God that characterized your life, it's not there anymore. Romans 12 says we're never to be lacking in zeal, but keep our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And you can't remember where it went. Maybe like the Laodiceans, you have become self-sufficient. You said, I'm rich, and I, I don't need anything, and so I don't, I don't need to run and cling desperately to Christ because I'm just fine. And so you have become lukewarm. And it happens even to sincere Christians. Think of King David, a man after God's own heart. He neglected to go to war in the springtime when it was the time that kings went off to war. He sent Joab to lead his armies instead of doing his job himself. And so one afternoon... And I would assume that means in a time he ought to have been working, he was hanging out on the couch, kind of lounging around. He gets up, and he goes out, and he walks out on the roof. Now, David's no dummy. He knows when he walks out on the roof and starts looking around at other rooftops, he's likely to see things he ought not be looking at. And sure enough, he sees this pretty woman taking a bath, and his curiosity is piqued. Now, the first step into David's sin was he neglected his responsibility as a king to lead his men into battle. That was a starting point. The decision not to go to war was probably not so I could stay home and destroy my integrity and my testimony by committing adultery and murder. But the first step was simply neglecting his responsibility. And then he ostensibly, I believe, was lazy and irresponsible, lounging around on the couch. And then I'm bored. I get up and walk around on the, on the, door, on the, on the, on the roof for a bit. And that's where he sees a beautiful woman. And rather than saying, I don't need to see this, and going inside, he calls a servant and says, go go, go find out who that is for me, please. And that servant, rather than saying, David, my king, what are you doing? You don't want to do this. He says, yes, sir, my king. And he goes and finds out and comes back and says, her her name is Bathsheba, her husband's Uriah. He's out fighting your battles. And David's like, oh, (laughs) her husband's not home. Very interesting. Hey, why don't you go get her for me? David, my king, don't do this thing. No. The servant complies. 
David sends for her. He lays with her. It gets worse after that. He, he, he murders her husband, Uriah, trying to cover up his sin after she becomes pregnant. And his heart becomes so hardened that eight or nine months later, before the baby's actually born, Nathan the prophet is told, come to David. Go to David and rebuke him for his sin. And so Nathan tells him the story. He says, David, there is this poor man in our kingdom. He had a little ewe lamb, a baby lamb. That was his pride and joy. It was his only real possession. He loved that baby lamb. And a wealthy man who lived near him had a guest come, and he didn't want to slaughter a lamb for his own, from his own flock to serve as a meal. So he takes that guy's little baby ewe lamb and slaughters it and serves it to his guests. And David said, that man deserves to die. He's furious at this injustice. And he is blind to the reality that the injustice he has committed against Uriah and Bathsheba is infinitely greater. He's hardened his heart. Hear me, Christians, you and I must cherish a tender heart toward the things of the Lord. We must, whatever we do, we must listen for the voice of God. We must listen and respond to those inner promptings of the Holy Spirit as He convicts us, as He warns us, as He guides us. Maintain a tender heart toward the Lord. Don't harden your heart for any reason. Don't compromise that purity that God calls us to. And then Hebrews gives us this example of the children of Israel and the terrible consequences that came when they hardened their hearts. And so we have this sobering example in verse 8 and following. Do not harden your hearts in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they, shall, they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. Back in Exodus chapter 17, the children of Israel have been led out of Egypt. They've been delivered from bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. And as they are leaving and they're entering the wilderness, Pharaoh changes his mind and decides to pursue them with his armies. And they come to the Red Sea, and they're between the sea where they would drown or the armies where they would be slaughtered, and they're panicking. What will we do? And by the hand of Moses, as he holds the rod out, the sea parts, and the people walk through on dry land and experience a glorious deliverance. And then as Pharaoh and his armies follow through, the waters come crashing down, and the entire army of Pharaoh is annihilated. They saw that. And yet they grumbled against God in chapter 17. They had seen God deliver them from slavery through these 10 plagues. And don't miss this. The 10 plagues correspond to Egyptian idols. And each one was a statement, God is stronger than this idol. God is stronger than that idol. God is stronger than all of the idols of Egypt. They began this journey across the wilderness, and it wasn't long because they grumbled against the Lord. They had no food. In chapter 16, they said, Wouldn't that, or would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. And they're yelling at Moses, they're grumbling as Moses they said, You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. You brought us out here to starve to death. Well, God didn't obliterate them right now, right then. Rather, He, he was gracious. Even though they had forgotten those bonds of slavery and the misery they had endured for all those many years, all they could think about was that immediate, my bellies are hungry, my children are crying, God has forsaken us. But God showed mercy. He sent 
quail that evening so they could have meat. And then every morning from then until they entered the promised land, he rained down bread from heaven we call manna. And they were grateful for that for a while, but then they got thirsty and they didn't have water. Life in the wilderness was not easy. Before we criticize the Egyptians too much and say, I would never do that. Wait a minute. Think how comfortable our lives are. <laughs> we have running water. We have refrigerators with, and, and pantries with food or access to stores. And we don't stand in long bread lines. But we complain. I remember going to college and I'd watch these Christian kids go into the dining hall and we'd sit down and, and they'd, they'd bring their tray and they'd set it down and they'd bow their heads and they'd give thanks to the Lord and they'd look and go, this is gross. Really? You just thank God for that gross. I never did that. Right, yeah. But instead of reasoning, has God brought us all the way out here simply to let us die of thirst? He delivered us from slavery. He took us across the Red Sea. He gave us quail in the evening and manna in the morning. Did he do all of that simply to let us die of thirst? Impossible. They didn't reason that way. That's, that's how faith reasons. But they hardened their hearts against the Lord. And they grumbled against Moses and against God. They said in 17.3, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And God didn't kill them right there. He showed mercy. He said to Moses, go strike that rock over there. And water comes gushing out. And all the water that the millions of men and women and children, all their livestock, all the water they needed for that day and for provisions going forward. Moses called that place Masa, meaning testing, and Meribah, meaning quarreling or rebellion. And so in Psalm 95, it says they tried the Lord at Masa and Meribah. Here it says in Hebrews, the place of rebellion and testing, same thing. But time and again, as soon as things got difficult in the wilderness, and they did, it was not an easy existence. And in fact, the Lord told them on the back end, he said, I, I took you through this to test you, to see what was in your hearts. And what came out wasn't very pretty. But time and again, as soon as things got difficult, they grumbled. In spite of all the miracles that they observed, all the glorious, miraculous deliverances and provisions, they were spiritual babies. They were hard-hearted toward the things of God. They'd rejoice when circumstances were favorable, but when sorrows like sea billows roll, they never said, it's well with my soul. They turned on the Lord and rebelled against him. And so they finally, they came to the border of the promised land. Moses sends in 10 spies, Joshua and Caleb and eight others. Joshua and Caleb come out and they say, this is a glorious promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. We must go. God will give it to us as he promised. And the other eight said, oh, no, no, no. There are giants in the land and we are grasshoppers like them. We are too small. We can't do it. We should go back. And they persuade the entire people of Israel, the entire camp, and they stage basically a total rebellion against the Lord and against Moses. And so God caused them to wander through the wilderness for 40 more years. It, it, it probably took a matter of just a few months to get from the Red Sea across the wilderness to the very edge of Jordan and the Promised Land. But for 40 years, God said, I will not let you go in. 
This is for the next generation. And brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews wants you and me to learn from their example. This Exodus event we find in the Bible is referred to over and over because it is a, it's a picture for us of our deliverance from bondage to sin and to death and our journey to the promised land of heaven. You and I, if you're a Christian, we were in bondage to sin, a, a, a slave master far worse than Pharaoh ever was. We were gloriously delivered by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We were set free from slavery. We were given that promise of eternal rest, which is heaven. We, and now we live in that in-between, that, that uh, uh, we're between the already of deliverance and the not yet of the promised land. We're enduring life in the wilderness, the trials, the difficulties, the heartaches, the joys, the, the fellowship, the wonder, the worship, but also the trials. And God is showing what is in our hearts and conforming us to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. So the question is, as you face trials, as you face the testing of your faith, will you listen to the voice of God? Will you believe his word as he has revealed himself to you? He has taught you to say, it's well with your soul. Will you say that by faith? Will you trust in your faithful Savior, or will you harden your heart and say, if this is where serving God gets me, I'm not interested? And will you go your own way? You know, life in the, in the wilderness is difficult. You know, here we are, we have the idea, you, you hear about this power evangelism. If people could just see the, the power of miracles, then they'll have great faith. The children of Israel saw miracles every single day, manna from heaven. They saw a pillar of cloud in the daytime leading them. They saw a pillar of fire at night. They had the parting of the Red Sea. They had water gushing from rocks. They saw miracles you and I could barely dream of. And they had hard hearts. The religious leaders of Jesus' day saw him heal people with withered hands, with crippled legs, blind, deaf, every manner of disease, chronic disease for years and years, healed with a word. They saw him raise the dead. They knew he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it doesn't say they were inspired or, or convinced by the glory of that miracle. It said they redoubled their efforts not only to put Jesus to death, but Lazarus as well. Is that not an incredible hardness of heart? You don't need miracles to give you great faith. You have the voice of God in his word. And that's what God uses to give us great faith. The problem's not a compelling lack of witness. It's hard hearts to that voice of God that we've already heard. So we have a spoken message. We have the Word of God. We have a serious admonition. Do not harden your heart. We have the sobering example of the hard-hearted, rebellious Israelites, and then we have the severe judgment. God says in verse 10, I was provoked with that generation. They said, and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God was provoked with them. He said, they go astray in their hearts, and that's where sin always begins. It always begins in the heart. They've not known my ways. It's not because they were ignorant of the law of God. They knew the law of God. Moses had set up this system of judges to teach them and to and, and instruct them and to uh, apply the law of God for them. They had means of grace right at their disposal. It wasn't they were not aware or they were ignorant of the law. It was that they did not observe it. 
They did not welcome and embrace God's law. They did not choose to go his way. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That was the wandering and straying heart of the, of the Israelite children. And so God swore in his wrath, they will never enter my rest. He swore in his wrath an irreversible sentence of judgment hanging over their heads. Now, this, again, this journey across the wilderness should have just taken a few months. But because they rebelled against God over and over again, God swore in his wrath, they will never stop wandering. They will never enter the promised land. Then he maintained those temporal mercies. They didn't just drop dead and they didn't starve to death. He gave manna every day. He caused water to come from rocks when it was needed. Their shoes did not wear out, which is something of a miracle in itself for 40 years. I don't have any shoes that last 40 years. Pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire every single day. But they lived with a sentence of death hanging over them. And they were never allowed to enter the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb, who trusted the Lord and were saying, Come on, let's go. God will deliver. He took them into that rest. And so the author of Hebrews cites their example, and he cites the warning, the judgment against them. And then we have a solemn warning for us. He says in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We've already talked about the nature of these warnings that addresses Christians. A real Christian cannot ultimately wander away from God. Can a Christian backslide? Well, David sure did. And other Christians certainly have as well. Maybe you are in a place right now where you're saying, I have wandered away from where I need to be. Maybe not in open, wanton rebellion, but of a coldness and a hardness that you know is not healthy. In Psalm 95, it says, we're his people. The people of his, the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's written to the people of God people who are in Christ, people who are his sheep. And it's the concluding application in this lesson about Israel's rebellion. Don't let this happen to you. Take particular care of your heart and your life. Make sure that you do not do anything that will harden your heart. Make sure you don't allow your heart to entertain even those very first motions of sin. Verse 13 talks about the deceitfulness of sin. We're going to deal with that next message, but how does sin deceive us? It says things like, it's not really that big a deal. It's not like you're going to go out and kill somebody. I I defended stealing because it was a big store and they got plenty of stuff and I was just stealing cheap stuff anyway. Or as long as nobody knows, as long as I don't get caught, what does it matter? I'm not hurting anybody else. Or maybe you have a right to be angry and you have a right to give vent to that anger because you've been wronged. Or maybe it's the deceptive lie just this once. You know what happens when you give in to just this once, don't you? The next message is just one more time. There's no such thing as just one more. Sin is relentless. Like a four-year-old child wanting one more cookie and one more cookie and one more cookie, right? Or 
sin comes and says, you can manage this. You can, you, can, you, can hold, you can contain your sin in manageable proportions. You can confine it to these corners of your life and it won't impact any other parts of your life. Or other Christians do things way worse than this. And on and on the lies go. If you, if you really want to study this out, go get hold of the book Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices and the various devices that Satan uses to weaken our defenses and to draw even sincere Christians into sin. Please hear me. These wilderness wanderings that we're involved in, they bring all manner of trials and temptations. They try us. They test our faith. They do not put sinful things into our lives. If sinful responses come out, that's because that's what was already inside of your heart. I've talked about that toothpaste tube. When you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, toothpaste comes out not because you squeeze it, because that's what was in it when you squeezed it. When God squeezes us, whatever's inside is what comes out. And when we see God squeezing us and things come out that are ugly, we don't stuff it back inside so nobody will notice. We repent and we plead with God, change me and make me more like Christ. And so this is the concluding application. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But it's also the introduction to the next appeal. And I'd like to read the the concluding verses to finish our message this evening. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Sounds like verse 6. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief. That's really the core of the problem. We're we're choosing not to believe the promises of God and the warnings of God, the threatenings of God, and the glory of God, and we're choosing to believe the lies of the enemy and the deceitfulness of sin. Israel, they heard, but they rebelled. They provoked the Lord for 40 years. They sinned, and their bodies fell in the wilderness, and their fundamental problem was unbelief. They had evil, unbelieving hearts. Our next message, we're going to unpack that a little bit more to consider the dangers of an evil, unbelieving heart. But we're also going to look at the gracious provision that God has made for every one of his children to protect us from falling away. Brother, would you come?